Hello everyone, this is Michael and I'm joined by Molly McManus. Welcome to Wavelength, the IUVA podcast. This episode is brought to you by Light Sources Incorporated, your global UVC lighting solutions partner. More on Light Sources Incorporated later in the show. Today we have a special episode with one of the pioneers of UV research and one of the founders of the IUVA, Dr. Jim Bolton who is also known, particularly among IUVA young professionals, as the father of UV. That's right. Dr. Bolton has over 45 years experience in photochemistry and ultraviolet technologies. He has over 300 publications, including 10 books and eight patents. He has a bachelor's and a master's degree from the University of Saskatchewan and a PhD from the University of Cambridge. He was a professor of chemistry at Western University in London, Ontario, Canada from 1970 to 1996. He has been an adjunct professor in the Department of Civil and Environmental Engineering at the University of Berta as well since 2001. And from 1999 to 2021, he also operated his own UV technologies consulting firm called Bowden Photosciences. We sat down with Jim to have a David Attenborough-style conversation about the evolution of UV research, from his beginnings in the field to what we are expecting in the years to come. We hope you enjoy it. We certainly did. So yeah, first of all, thank you again for taking the time to sit down with us and uh, talk about uh, UV and uh, basically about your career in with uh, UV disinfection and photochemistry. Well, it's my pleasure. I've had a wonderful career. It's nice to see how things are developing. I think it's so interesting to ask people, you know, Obviously, like you're Jim Bolton, okay? You are the UV guy. You are responsible. You're basically the reason any of us are here. You are one of the founders of the IUVA. And so I think it's always so interesting to ask, how did you end up in UV? Because I feel like very few people end up here on purpose. So what, what was your path? Well, I started out in a very theoretical and non-practical field. I did my PhD in a theoretical study of spectroscopy called electron power magnetic resonance to detect free, free radicals. Had nothing to do with photochemistry or, or ultraviolet. And so I got my first academic job at the University of Minnesota. I was an assistant professor there in the chemistry department. And the chemistry department is right next to the faculty club. So I used to go to the faculty club for lunch. One day I was late getting there. All my colleagues had left. So I picked up my tray and I saw this gentleman sitting at a table by himself. So I sat down and introduced myself. His name was Albert Frankel and he was from the botany department. And I asked what his specialty was, and he said he studied photosynthetic bacteria. And so I said, well, that's interesting. Why don't you bring some over this afternoon, and we'll have a look at it in my apparatus. So they did. He did. We put it in the spectrometer, 
In the dark, there was no signal at all. Found a flashlight somewhere, turned on the flashlight, and there was a huge signal. That was my beginning in photochemistry. <laughs> Super interesting. That's, uh, yeah, <laughs> didn't expect that. I decided I had to study photosynthesis and understand where that signal was coming from. Turned out it was coming from the primary reaction center of the bacteria. It was the very center of the conversion of light to energy. So it, 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 I went and did a, a sabbatical year with uh, Professor Clayton, who was in photosynthesis work. So I learned photosynthesis and worked with him to actually determine the quantum yield for the generation of this primary reaction center. So from there on, I got more and more interested in photochemistry, environmental photochemistry, and ultimately ultraviolet light. And uh, when did you first get in touch with uh, ultraviolet applications for disinfection purposes? In the late 1980s and 90s, um, I was on the organizing committee to form the International Ultraviolet Association in 1999 and uh, served as their executive director for several years. And uh, <clears throat> that was uh, when the IUVA was founded then? That's right, 1999. And how many founding members were there? Do you remember? Something like 25. 25. So what year did you have the lunch? So, like how many years did it go from you have lunch and talk about this bacteria to the founding of the IEBA? Lunch occurred in 1966. Wow. Oh, that's quite a time. <laughs> yeah. I progressed from studying photosynthesis to studying molecules that mimic the primary reaction in photosynthesis, molecules that had a donor and an acceptor in the same molecule. And uh, then got interested in solar energy. I helped to found the Solar Energy Society of Canada in 1975. Okay. Solar energy, studied the thermodynamics of the conversion of light to work and in photochemical processes using solar energy, solar energy. So ultimately got interested in the environment. In 1991, I took advantage of a special program of the Canadian government that would allow faculty members to spend time in industry. So I took two years off I went to a company called SolarChem okay. in Toronto and worked with them in the use of ultraviolet light to purify and disinfect water. And then in 1997 and 1998, I worked with the company, which later was bought by Calgon Carbon and the, the Cryptosporidium story 
1992, Milwaukee was hit with a very serious outbreak of cryptosporidium contamination in the water. Many people died and 100,000 got sick. So it was a very serious, serious event. I just want to pause for just one moment because I I want to make sure our listeners understand what you're talking about right now is a huge occurrence in the world of UV. And I'm quite possibly one of the most significant events that led to UV becoming widely used. Um, So I just want everyone to listen in because this is really cool to hear it from someone who like who lived it was on the front line. So please, Jim, continue. Prior to 1998, everyone assumed that ultraviolet couldn't be used to treat true cryptosporidium. And the problem was that the research that had been done to that point had focused on the damage to the membrane by ultraviolet light. They thought you'd have to break the membrane in order to kill the cell. But when I got involved in this, I said that 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 cannot be, because disinfection involves the, the photochemistry and DNA. And everyone thought that UV couldn't get into the cell DNA because of a thick protein outer layer in the outer membrane. The proteins don't absorb in the range where nucleotides absorb. So to me, the membrane is the window. The, UV can go right down into the nucleotide, nucleus core of the cell and interact with the DNA and inhibit the replication of the, of the cell. So the focus of our, our Dowling Carbon fortunately funded this to an extent of quite, quite a few millions of dollars involving a team of um, people of microbiologists and animal, we had to do the testing in mice, so we need animal scientists. So it was quite a large team. And we studied this and what we found was that instead of being most difficult to treat, cryptosporidium was in fact almost the easiest microorganism to treat. The complete paradigm shift so in 1998, I gave a lecture at the annual meeting of the American Water Works Association and revealed for the first time that this, this research, and it created quite a stir. And I think it really led to the renaissance of UV being used to treat water. Because after 1998, there was quite a flood of installations that took place all over the world. And when you talk about these installations, uh, what did they look like at the time? What were these first uh, installations that were uh, put to remedy this situation, like the outbreak you said? Well, uh, I can describe to you the one that I was involved in helping develop here in Edmonton. That was in 2001. And, uh, a large water treatment plant, and they put in uh, six um, UV reactors. Each one had uh, 60 kilowatts of electrical power. So it's three, three water lines. There were 
uh, three reactors on, on each line. And that treated the entire water for the city. So it cut down on the need for chlorine and the, the water is taste wonderful because you don't taste the chlorine. Treating with ultraviolet ever since. Well, so so that's awesome. I want to touch back to one thing you said though when you were talking about the research that you did um, with Calgon uh, Carbon, I believe, and you said something about UV destroying the membrane, and there is a lot known about how UV would destroy a membrane versus mm -hmm. a membrane being a window that UV would pass through to get to the DNA. Mm -hmm. I think now the idea that UV affects DNA is very widely known. Is there a time when that, that wasn't the case? It was known, but the, the misconception was that people didn't understand the absorption characteristics of nucleotides and proteins. You look at the absorption spectrum of protein, it absorbs very heavily before, below 240 nanometers, a little better 280. But in the region of 250, 260 nanometers, it's wide open, it's a window. And these are the wavelengths that are absorbed by the nucleotides. So the dimer, photodimerization that is the essence of UV disinfection occurs very readily. It doesn't matter. You've got a protein membrane out there. The UV just comes barreling right through the membrane. Very cool. Thank you. So the work that we did was with, with mice. We inoculated mice with cryptosporidium and kept the mice alive for a few days and sacrificed them and analyzed their intestines to see whether they had been infected with cryptosporidium. So you needed an infectivity assay. And by using this infectivity assay, we're able to determine that the cryptosporidium, in fact, was not able to reproduce after being exposed to a very small amount of UV. Wow. And you said it was an interdisciplinary team, so it was uh, you and uh, a bunch of other scientists working on, on a solution for that? Bertrand Dusser, uh, Jennifer Clancy, Mary Marshall, and many others were involved. And doing this research, it was really quite fun and uh, very surprising the results that came out. And very helpful, I guess, for <laughs> for the future yeah. and for a lot of waterworks and uh, water suppliers worldwide. Yeah, I mean, we're really talking about a, a, a paradigm shift in thinking of how do we use this technology? Where does this technology go? And that would have all changed in a matter of the study. How, how long was the cryptosporidium study? Well, we, about a year that we worked on it. Wow, okay. So in a, in a span of 12 months, That's you right. literally changed how an industry is going to function. I mean, that's, that's crazy. And that is so cool. important in looking at things, at the fundamentals of photochemical processes. Because I was able to understand how the UV could come through the membrane. Other people didn't understand that. They looked at this thick 
oocyst shell said, well, the UV can't go through there, it's, it's filtering it. That's not true. Yeah. That's so it's so commonly known now, at, at, you know, but everything had to be discovered before it could become right. commonly known. So that's really neat, in perspective. Yeah. Um, go ahead, Mike. And uh, now we have been talking about uh, water disinfection and disinfection of drinking water. But uh, in general, what would you say were the fields that profited, profited the most of uh, UV from UV technology over the years, not only in terms of uh, water treatment? In terms of water treatment, that was certainly the major impetus. Uh, but more recently, there's been a lot of interest in UV in treating uh, COVID-19, for example. <clears throat> treating the coronavirus is uh, air disinfection. The problem with air disinfection is that there are no standards. There's no system for monitoring and verifying equipment to treat bacteria and viruses in air. <clears throat> That's currently being attempted to be cor corrected. IUVA has a task force. <clears throat> working on this now to try and develop standards. But when the coronaviruses came out, my phone was jumping off the hook. People were asking how can we apply UV to treat the coronaviruses. And so- and uh, Did people have some good ideas or <laughs> what would you yes, say? They did. Uh, I collaborated with, for example, with a group in Ottawa that developed a UV, uh, robot that could be run up and down the aisle of an of a aircraft cabin, cabin or a LRT cabin or bus cabin in order to disinfect the walls and the seats. And uh, this, we worked it all out, verified the, the uh, UV dose that was being applied. They built several of them now, and airlines seem to be interested. Today's episode is sponsored by Light Sources Incorporated, your global UVC lighting solutions partner. With over 38 years of lamp manufacturing experience, Light Sources is a key partner and supplier of germicidal UVC lamps to hundreds of OEMs globally. Whether your application is water, air, or surface disinfection focused, Light Sources Incorporated has the expertise to help make your design become a reality. To learn more about what Light Sources can do for your business, check out www.light-sources.com. Also, there's new light technologies available called UV LEDs. I'm sure you're familiar with the LEDs. I don't know. But they've now extended the wavelengths into the ultraviolet. And if UV LEDs can achieve the same kind of efficiency and lifetime as the visible ones, 
And this is going to totally revolutionize the ultraviolet industry because UV LEDs give you a lot more flexibility in how you can divide, design a UV reactor. I was quite fortunate in being asked to <clears throat> help verify the first commercial scale UV LED reactor. It had 1,000 UV LEDs. And at, uh, at what time was that? Two years ago. Two years ago. Okay. Wow. Can you tell us a little bit about that? So, you know, you were so implemental in the shift of traditional UV, and now you've seen the technology shift to LEDs. What was, what was it like to be able to test that large of an LED system? A lot of fun. Really fun working with a, a young, <laughs> excited group of engineers. Company name was Typhon in the United, United Kingdom. And they've installed now uh, this UV LED commercial reactor and a water treatment plant in the UK. But it's commercial scale now, it's, it's happening. And uh, UV LEDs are going to improve their efficiency just like any semiconductor device. And I think within four or five years, we're going to see many applications of UV LEDs. Another interesting <laughs> application is um, they found that ultraviolet in the far UV wavelengths less than 230 nanometers is not absorbed, is absorbed just on the surface of the skin and doesn't penetrate the skin. It's absorbed in the surface layer that sloughs off every day. So you can be exposed to this wavelength of UV without any damage. So you can do, you can disinfect the whole body. So when we talk about, when you talk about regulations about air and how there aren't air regulations right now, and those are being written, when we talk about far UV, how long do you think it'll be before society as a whole catches up with the capabilities of that technology enough to be able to have standards written for it. Because I imagine that opens a unique can of worms. I think the technology is well ahead of the regulations. That's the problem. There are some very good companies and very responsible ones that properly design their instruments. But there are some fly-by-night companies that promise everything and produce very little. I think this is particularly true in the companies that produce these ultraviolet wands. You can just pass a wand over your device and have it instantly disinfect with that is nonsense. <laughs> yeah, if it involves it's a blinding a wand. stick. <laughs> Fantastic. Oh, that's great. <laughs> So, okay, so that's probably the worst thing that you've seen maybe come out of the, out of the pandemic. Um, the coolest thing you, you said, you mentioned air treatment. Was there anything, any project or product in particular that you saw come out through the coronavirus that you thought was, oh, that's really interesting. Like that, that's unique. Yes, there's a company in France that has produced you know, you um, 
the probes that are used for ultrasound. Ultrasonic. Ultrasonic uh, probes, you know, when you get, when a woman is pregnant, they can show the baby. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so these probes have to be disinfected in between use, right? So they've developed a kind of cup that the probe can be put into the cup and the ultraviolet light surrounds the, the probe and disinfects it in between. So all they do is put the probe into the cup, turn on the UV light, and then it's ready for the next patient. That's, That's awesome. really a, a cool application for the medical field. Yeah. yeah. I would call that brilliantly simple. Exactly. You know, nothing yeah. crazy, but very simple to apply and very, you know, real world useful application. That's really cool. I like that a lot. Yeah. That's really neat. Maybe we will see, see more of that as UV has also been used now for PPE disinfection when it when there was a scarcity of the PPE in the beginning of the pandemic. Okay. So, yeah. Maybe we will see more of that coming in the medical field for fast and easy disinfection. If the ultraviolet had been available in the airlines, then probably we wouldn't be transmitting the virus readily around the world. Yeah, that's true. You would think it would certainly help limit it, right? I mean, but yeah, it'll be... It's almost kind of one of those things where you're like, if LEDs were just a, a little more ahead, you know, if they had come out just a few years sooner uh, to think how different this pandemic might look um, in terms of where you could put things uh, for disinfection. So, um, but UV is making a difference right now, regardless. So that is, that is yeah. the silver lining, if you will. I have ultraviolet lamp in my furnace. So all oh. the air going through the furnace is disinfected. Oh, okay. You installed it yourself or? No, oh, there's a company that produces it here in Edmonton. Oh, okay. That's sold. interesting. Yeah, my husband and I looked at um, getting one of those as well in our new furnace. So, yeah, I don't, Michael, maybe... It hasn't made it in, in Europe, but yeah, in the States, it's, it's a thing where you can get traditional UV bulbs in your, in your air ducts now. Okay. So it's probably been around for a while. I'm probably a little slow to the, to the uptake, to be fair. Um, but yes, that's it's becoming more and more common, which is awesome. So I think I've only seen it at, at hospitals and public buildings where they use uh, like uh, uh, I it's think I, they mounted to the wall. Many of these installations, the UV is put in and then it's forgotten. <laughs> Realize you have to replace those bulbs every year. <laughs> it's not of great use, then it's just a normal air deck. Installations where they open it up and the lamp is totally black. <laughs> That's just it. Yeah. If you, technology is only as good as the person who is using it. So if you are not keeping up with replacements, forget it. It's not, it's not helping you. So yeah, very true. <laughs> Be interesting to know what percentage of people have them in their air ducts and actually change them every year. I bet you it's less than 50%. <laughs> I would so, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 25% might be pushing it, you know, we'll see. Yeah. 
And uh, one thing I wanted to come back to shortly is before uh, you shortly mentioned the founding of the IUVA. Yeah. Um, I think for us, um, yeah, especially also me who are very new to the IUVA, it would be interesting to know um, how did the IUVA start and how did it become this uh, yeah, this global association that it yeah. is today? Well, because of the work that we did in 1998 at the AWA conference in Dallas, the EOCPA got quite interested. And so they organized a small workshop in Washington in 1999. And a number of us in the UV field were feeling we needed an association. So we took advantage of this organization, this workshop, to take a few hours to organize the IUVA. And so there was about 25 that showed up and we got together and decided to form the association. And this was mostly North American uh, scientists? And... North American, but there were a couple from Europe. As I remember, um, uh, Regina Sommer was there from Austria. And uh, there were a couple of others I may have forgotten. There is a the first issue of IUVA News has a picture of the organizing group on the front page. So if you go back into the archives, you can see it. I think I've yeah. seen this picture. It's, it's really cool. Maybe we can put it with the podcast when we upload yeah. it. <laughs> you will definitely be in there. The key people were Jim Malley, myself, and Rick Price, who uh, was very involved with the Ozone Association. So he helped us to form the IUVA. When you founded and, uh, it, did you think it would turn into what it is now? Oh, I, I had no idea what would happen to it. Could have been just a small academic association, but right from the start, it got a lot of industry support. And that's the key. There's been a good collaboration of academics and industry and consultants. It's really kept it alive and kept it vibrant. Agreed. That's awesome. It's very neat yeah. to see it, what it is now, um, you know, to take it for granted. So, you know, the IUVA just always existed for me. I've never had to struggle to have a, an, an organization. Um, so to, to look back and see, okay, well, here's the founding members. Like, it's, it's impressive to see what you guys accomplished and what you started. Well, it took Thanks. 20 years to go and work in industry. It really opened my eyes. I've been working in academics all my career at that point. And I realized the practical problems of actually implementing a technology was quite an eye-opener. So you would say the program, <clears throat> I think it was a federal program, you said, that right. helped academics. That's right. The government and paid half the salary and the company paid the other half. Oh. I think that's a very interesting approach to also help new technologies be developed yeah. developed with a yeah with the cutting edge technology that is, that is a really is, good program. And yeah. it completely changed my outlook on on practical applications. Yeah. 
What was something you've learned, if you can recall, something that you learned through that that was surprising to you as you came out of academics and kind of into the real world a little bit? What's surprising in academics, in most universities, they're very compartmentalized. Departments are separated from each other and there's not much interaction between departments or even interaction within a department. In a small company like SolarChem, there were only about 40 employees. Everyone had to work together. So the engineers and the secretaries and the, and the academics and the consultants all had to interact to solve a real problem. And so it wasn't just a matter of everyone on a daily basis was collaborating. There was no departmental structure. It was focused on solving problems. Okay. And uh, <clears throat> since, you, since you have seen both sides working with companies, working in academics, um, what would you say or what would be an advice for, for young professionals working in the field from your side? Well, don't, don't assume that the best jobs are in academics. <laughs> there are some industrial jobs that are very exciting. You may not be able to publish as much, but you get involved in some very practical applications that really stretch your knowledge and stretch your, your abilities to solve problems. So I think it all depends on what your objectives are. But don't don't give up on an industrial job. There there are some very exciting ones. Yeah, that is such an interesting outlook. I, I wasn't I was not expecting that because um, you you don't see a lot of crossover. I think where people are going back and forth between like I have an academic job, I have an industry job, I have an academic job, um, and the idea that like industry just isn't naturally boring because you know when we think of research and academia you think of doing new things always new always on the cutting edge but that does happen in industry as as well uh clearly uh so that's oh, that was just that was really cool that's a really cool outlook the development of this uvled commercial scale reactor they had to start from the how are you going to engineer the uvled into into the reactor. They did it with a series of 50 rings with the 20 UV LEDs in each ring. And they had to organize the UV LED in terms of its optical path to get the UV coming directly into the water. It was a great combination of academic work and industrial applications to come out with this, this very innovative product. And uh, what would you say? Do uh, you think that the programs like the one that uh, got you in touch with industry are, are necessary, or you hope that in the future it might be instigated by, by academics themselves? I haven't heard of other countries doing this, but I think it's something that should be looked at. I, th I felt it was very valuable.
So Jim, when you have someone, you know, so you've, you've spent so much time in academics. Um, how do you help, I guess, uh, how many of your students that have worked under you have stayed in UV or have you noticed that sometimes a, a foundation in UV can also lead to all these other avenues? Well, what have you observed? Lots of applications and jobs, many of them into consulting, engineering consulting firms. Okay. Few of them have gone into faculty positions. Many of them have gone into industry, not necessarily ultraviolet industry. But, um, so they've kind of so your influence has has really percolated through all these different <laughs> applications. Again, very cool. I tell I tell my students that they should, when they graduate, not go on and try to work in the same field that they've done in their, for their graduate work. Try something different. As, as you did when you were at the associate professor in Minnesota. <laughs> yeah, it's probably a good advice to not. That is interesting. Good science is driven by curiosity. Oh, that's a good quote. Curiosity and good observation. And if you observe something that's very unusual, it raises your curiosity. Have the courage to investigate it. Have the courage to jump into it and explore something new and exciting. You'll never regret it. There we and go. Coming from you. Coming from you, <laughs> I don't think we have to believe it. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. so interesting because it would be, uh, even when I talk to um, people that I went to college with and we talk about what we majored in versus what we ended up doing now, I think I know two people that really stayed in, even in their field of engineering. You know, a lot of people end up graduating and finding jobs in all sorts of interesting places. So that's... You're right. Good science comes from curiosity. And do you have the courage to investigate it? Oh, that's good. Where are the t-shirts? We need t-shirts to say this. When I started my photosynthesis work, I had never had a course in biology. I didn't know anything about biological processes. I had to learn it all from scratch. The idea that there was a time when Jim Bolton didn't know biology. It makes me feel better about myself, personally. <laughs> so did you, did you read up on it yourself, or did you uh, do that in, in coordination with your colleagues? Both reading up on it and working with the sabbatical I took with uh, Rod Clayton at Cornell University was very good because he was already in the field. He was a physicist who moved into photosynthesis, so it was very similar to me. And so we worked together very well. I can imagine, yeah, that's, that sounds interesting. That sounds very good, yeah. And uh, since we have been talking a lot about uh, the past and new technologies and uh, a variety of different applications, is, uh, is there anything that 
do you think is uh, very promising or very interesting for for the years to come? Well, I think new technologies are going to come from unexpected sources. I mean, for example, this far UV application, no one even thought that would be possible. And now all of a sudden it opens up a new field of application. So the the new applications come from discoveries in the fundamental side. So it's really important that we understand the photos the photophysics of what happens when light is impinges on an object and is absorbed. What are the fundamental processes that take place? So if you can understand all of that, then you can begin to see new applications. So you think there's still a lot of uh, yeah, um, fundamental research to be done in order for us to see uh, new technologies in the UV field? And there, there are even developments in the fundamental side. We talk about ultraviolet dose in terms of millijoules per square centimeter. But that's, that's not what light is about. Light has photons. Mm -hmm. yeah. What is yeah. important is what is the photon flux coming in, being absorbed in the microorganism. So the very concept of ultraviolet dose is antiquated. We need to look at it in a different sense in terms of photons that are impinging on the microorganism. So when you look into the future, you see us changing just even how we calculate dose, how we talk about dose. Yeah, oh, that's cool to think about. And how eventually, yeah, yeah. we might talk about it in photons per second or exactly. what have you. Oh, that's neat. The fundamental thing you should be looking at is the photons per second that are coming in. Now they're absorbed because that's the driver is photon flux, not energy that's coming in because photons yeah. are different energy, different wavelengths. Okay, so that's where you get into the... Oh, so that's where you kind of get into the idea that different wavelengths are have are effect more more and less effective for different applications, exactly. if you will. Yeah. Oh, this, oh that's so this cool. good. It feels like that's a lecture. Such a neat now. way to think about that. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm nerding out really bad. Learning right now. a lot today. <laughs> yeah. I've always tried to look at the fundamentals all the way through to applications. If you don't understand the fundamentals, you're going to make mistakes in the application. Yeah. And in the best case, we learn from them. That's right. In the best case. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. I think we have uh, taken up a lot of your time today <laughs> already. So um, we might... Uh, want to come to a close so uh just for to keep it light <laughs> at the end maybe on a personal note is there anything else that uh, you would recommend people that are stuck at home now or that you feel is is a good thing to do when when cases are going up and uh, people are staying at home again think outside of the box 
Yeah, there, there, there are two types of scientific progress in my view. There's incremental research. It takes a technology and looks at one more compound, doing the same thing over and over again, but the different compounds. And where does that lead you? Well, just massive data. Yeah. Which along the way, you may observe something unusual, something that doesn't seem to fit. If you jump out and have a look at that, you may find you have a totally line, different line of research. So, so curiosity leapers that really make progress in research, and then they're the incremental snails that come along and move slowly forward. <laughs> That's a nice way to put it. So I think the takeaway from today is we should should stay curious and not be afraid of following something unusual. Exactly. That's a nice message to to finish on. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. Yeah, thank you so much. Yes. It was a, a pleasure talking to you and thank you so much for taking the time. And I don't know if there's anything that you want to plug still or anything that you think uh, our listeners should be checking out. You feel free to talk about it. Ask your questions. Don't be afraid to ask questions. That's how you learn. Master your, master your mentors and people that you're trying to learn from. Never be afraid to ask questions. That sounds like you're encouraging our listeners to ask you questions. <laughs> My email is jbolton at boltonuv.com. So send me an email and I will be happy to. <laughs> Great. Thank you very much. Okay. All right. That's it for today. Thanks so much to Dr. Jim Bolton for joining us on the show. Like he mentioned, you can send him your questions at jbolton at boltonuv.com. If you'd like to learn more about the origins of the modern UV industry, there's a great article on it in the 2019 quarter one edition of UV Solutions, the IUVA's magazine. And thanks again to Light Sources Incorporated, your global UVC lighting solutions partner for sponsoring today's episode. This show is produced by Dana Pusti and Sakit Tanaru. Nathan Moore does our sound design. My co-host was Molly McManus. And our music is by Justin Dosset and Stephanie Gora of Almost Lovers. Uh, a special thanks today to uh, Professor Jim Malley for digging through the archives to find the photo of the IUVA's first steering committee, which you can find attached to this episode. I'm Michael Hoffman. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode and keep checking out the podcast for more news from the UV world. <laughs>